Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. I want to welcome any visitors who are here with us, uh, especially for the first time. That would include my in-laws, which I am uh, thankful to have. I was thinking this week that um, you and my in-laws share a very significant thing in common. When I was 19 years old, I went to my father-in-law and I said, can I have your hand, the hand of your daughter in marriage? And as a 19-year-old, he said yes. He trusted that to me. No job, no money. Not all that different from inviting a 30-something-year-old to come and pastor your congregation. (laughs) So you have that in common. Well, we're Excited to have you if you are a guest with us. If you're not, you've been around, you've seen, you've been in the middle of this with us, this series that we've been looking at the book of Ephesians in, this series entitled Together. And our hope is that even as we've gotten to know each other over these last five or so weeks of being in Ephesians, our hope is, my hope is, is that you've begun to understand how this book fits together. And we've looked so far, we've looked so far with Paul at what it means to be that we have been together blessed in Christ, past, present, and future. Paul tells us then after that, that his constant prayer, his, his thank you, and please pass the potatoes prayer, right? he tells us that his prayer is that God would do even more though. And so... He's prayed that we would know way down deep not only what God did for us in the past, but but that we are together bound for the future. And that no matter what stands in our way, spiritual forces of darkness or otherwise, that God's going to get us there in the end. He's going to get us where he intends us to go. So together blessed and together bound. And if you need assurance that God will do what God set out to do, Paul says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who he rose, he raised from the dead. But also look to us and how we've already been made together alive and how he has brought us together near. Because of this assurance that God is going to do what God sets out to do. Paul then, now, in the letter, where we are today, he stops telling us how he prays, and he turns to actually pray. But not before he takes a moment to remind the Ephesians, and to remind us as well, that he is better situated to pray this prayer that he is about to pray at the end of chapter 3. He is better situated to pray this prayer on our behalf than anyone else. And that's what we're going to see today in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you'd open up your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 3, you can follow along as I read from verses 1 to 14. This is God's Word. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, 
as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, that has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. Let's pray. Let's bow our knees before considering what Paul has to say to us today. Heavenly Father, we have to admit that in a world, in this world, our trust is often shaken. Whether it's the trust we put in other people or the trust we put in ourselves or even, and especially at times, the trust we put in you and your word. That sometimes it just seems too good to be true. And sometimes things seem too bad for it to be possible. But as we look at your word today and what you've written through Paul, I pray that we'd leave this place with our confidence renewed, both that Paul knew what he was praying for and that you're going to do exactly what you set out to do from the very beginning, in the name of your son, who I pray would be our confidence. Amen. Well, a few hours after we were last together, our country witnessed its deadliest mass shooting by a lone perpetrator. Title most recently won just a little over a year ago in the Orlando nightclub massacre. But now, if you've been following its development, late last week after checking himself into a suite on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Resort, just overlooking the Las Vegas Strip, for 10 minutes, just after 10 o'clock Sunday night, a man named Stephen Paddock opened fire on a crowd of 22,000 people gathered for a country music festival. Upwards of 500 were injured. 58 were killed. By the time this retired accountant then turned the gun on himself, thus ending the deadliest mass shooting to date 
by a lone perpetrator in the United States history. But what has puzzled, what has puzzled the officials most is that there was no indication of what, of what was coming. There was no indication, despite the relationships that never seemed to stick, to the guns that he had amassed, to the casinos that he frequented, no one saw this as the end. Not his neighbors, not his hairdresser, not his family members, and not his Filipino girlfriend who just a few days before had, he had sent back to the Philippines to go buy a house with $100,000 that he ended up wiring her. No one saw this coming. The massacre came so seemingly out of the blue that one is hard-pressed to find a better explanation for it than given in our own letter to the Ephesians. That there was a man, this was a man who was, in the words of chapter 2, verse 1, dead in the trespasses and sins in which he walked, following the, the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that was at work in this son of disobedience. You can't find a better description when you're looking for an answer and there seems to be no answer. And though our stories may have taken a very different turn, punctuated as they are by verse 4 of chapter 2, that but God... That in Christ, we who once were likewise dead have now been made alive. Though our stories may have taken personally a very different turn, such pictures of evil triumphing over good very likely will make us pause when a man like Paul starts speaking about a world like ours, telling us we can have confidence that God's going to do what God set out to do for his people. That what God began, God will bring to completion. Does an incident like last Sunday cause you to doubt at some level? I mean, it was for me reading through the headlines, headline after headline after headline, every day this week, that was the news story. Does it cause you to doubt, to say, really, Paul, really? Because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. It doesn't look like God's going to do what God set out to do sometimes. And Las Vegas is only the most recent and only the most pronounced of the headlines that seem to be never-ending. But everywhere I look, evil seems to be triumphing over good. Out in the world my own heart so that where I where I think God ought to be most vocal he only ever seems to be most silent ever make you doubt wonder whether what Paul is saying is actually true really Paul what makes you think that you know something that we don't know so much so that you've told us You've told us, Paul, of the confidence with which you pray. All in the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2. 
And now in chapter 3, the confidence that makes you turn to pray again. What is it, Paul? Before he turns to pray, or as he says in verse 14, to bow his knees before the Father, he takes a moment in these verses to tell us just that. That he can put such confidence in God and what God's going to do in the, in the midst of a world so seemingly at times out of his control because first, he knows God's plan. And second, he knows God's purpose. He knows the plan, what he calls the mystery of God. And he knows the purpose And so he's better situated to have said what he said and to pray what he's about to pray than anyone else because he knows the plan and he knows the purpose. First, he knows the plan. Paul begins in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, or of Christ Jesus, because he sees himself as a prisoner of Jesus, not the Romans who had their chains wrapped around him. That's an important distinction in life when you see yourself as bound by this world, that really you're bound to Christ, you're a prisoner of Christ if you've trusted in Christ. Paul says, I was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. As a prisoner for Christ, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles, I, Paul, but he doesn't finish his sentence. You see that in your, in your Bibles? You see the dash there? He doesn't finish his sentence yet because he's not ready to finish his sentence yet, not until verse 14. He says, I, Paul, uh, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship or administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that God gave me a grace, and that's, and that, that's why I'm going to pray, he says, a task to see to. And this grace came with a a responsibility to, to see it through. That I would, in a sense, Paul says, be the executor of the estate. That's what this word stewardship means. The grace that Paul's been given by God. That Paul was appointed as the executor of the estate, as the administrator of the house. We've just recently begun in my family with what I know many of you have already become wrapped up in, with the administration of the estate. My parents are just about both retired. They're hoping to relocate at some point. There's a number of questions then. They've been circling around via email or, or, or text of all that goes with that, of their life in the future. And With each passing year, me and my siblings are becoming more and more aware that they're not going to live forever. Now, my dad married younger than him, so my dad's the one that reminds us most of that. But we're more and more aware of the frailty and the fragility of life. And if you come from a big enough family like I do, I'm one of seven, and I'm sure you know as I'm learning the complications that come with designating the one who's going to have the responsibility as the administrator of the house, as the executor of the estate. Do you know the complications 
That's a complicated process. And often it's a process that is decided by grace. There's nothing that particularly merits it. It's a process by grace. Well, Paul says that in the household of God, at least when it comes to understanding the household boundaries and the share and the inheritance available to all its members, he says that he, as a grace from God, has been appointed the executor of the estate. And you may know if you've waded into those waters that the executor of the estate is the one person who has access to all the information. Now, despite who wants the information, it's the executor of the state, right? You have to go to the executor of the estate. They have the privilege and the responsibility of knowing the will, about knowing the plan, knowing how that will relates to the division of the inheritance, right? Well, likewise, Paul says that along with this grace of being the household executor, he assumes those he's writing to, as word has probably spread, he expects, in the first century, that they had also heard how God gave him this grace. How in verse 3 he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, both elsewhere but also here in this letter from the Very opening, it's very opening verse where he names himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's not a throwaway line. It's actually a a description of how he became an apostle. He took on this role as the executor of the estate by the will of God. He, at different points in this, even in this letter, alludes to God's hand in his own life, how he'd been called. And how he'd been equipped at different points by God, personally, by the risen Jesus, to take on this task. He says in verse 4, when you read this, this letter, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And his point is that out of all of them, Paul knows the plan better than anyone. These past few weeks, we've had sort of a a preview in my family of what we expect is on the horizon at some point with my parents because there's been a, a, a frenzy of activity as my mother and my uncle George have been sorting through my grandmother's house. You remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned my grandmother, 91, had a fall recently, lived in the same house for 90 years. This fall has forced her to move into a uh, a nursing facility. And so my uncle and my mom have been sorting through the house, trying to clean it up and get it ready for um, selling it, as it were. Uh, Nobody can use it. It's a shame. It's right in the middle of New York City, too. Been there for ages, but... No one can use it, so they're sorting through. And in this process, there has been a load of questions circling around. Who's going to get Grandpa's hat, his famous hat that everyone remembers him in? Who's going to get his hat? Who's going to get his leather chair? Which now, I don't know who would want his leather chair. It, I mean, he sat in that too long. Like, but who is going to get his leather chair? Who's going to get his Bible? His Bible disappeared, actually. It's actually sitting on my shelf (laughs) in my office. (laughs) 
his German Bible. But a litany of questions that most of us have no idea how to answer, such that the repeated reply has been, go to Uncle George, contact Uncle George, Uncle George will know. Why? Because Uncle George is the executor of the estate. So contact Uncle George. Paul says this mystery in verse 6 is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, together heirs, and together members of the same body, and together partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he says, I know it better than anyone because it's been made known to me. And I know it not just with my mind, he says, but with my very life, he says, as I become a prisoner of Jesus for this very reason. Of this gospel, he says in verse 7, by which the nations were made together heirs. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Interestingly, in light of the men we brought forward before, the word here is deacon. Diakonos. Of this gospel, he says, I was made a deacon, a, a servant, a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. When Jesus met him on the road and knocked him off his horse and raised him up for this very position. Paul says, I know the plan. I know the mystery, not that we have to crack, but that God's cracked on our behalf, that that where God's plan was mistaken at times to be for just one people, it was actually about one person, Jesus. And in him was in fact a plan for all God's people made of members from all peoples. I know the plan, he says. So trust me that I know what I've been talking about for two chapters now and trust me that I know what I'm about to pray for at the end of chapter three. But it's not just that he knows the plan. Paul says you can trust me because I know God's purpose. Not just the plan, Paul knows the purpose. You could pick up in verse 8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, presumably because of where he came from and where Jesus found him and what Jesus found him doing in the name of God. If you know the story of Paul trying to sniff out the people of God and attempt to snuff out the name of God's Son, he says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, to proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Though I was the least, I was given, in effect, the greatest privilege because Paul was the one who got to go around to all those who didn't even know they were part of the family to tell them that the distant relative they forgot about, that they actually didn't even realize they were related to anymore, in effect, had done quite well for themselves. And though nobody would have guessed it, 
had in fact included them, the Gentiles, in the inheritance. This was Paul's privilege to, to knock on the doors as the executor of the estate to say that old Uncle Billy, who everyone had forgotten about, nobody even bothered to send Christmas cards to anymore, actually didn't do as bad in life as everyone supposed and had, in fact, written you into the will. You ever get a knock on the door about old Uncle Billy? That would be quite the coincidence, me talking about old Uncle Billy. I was reading this week of all these knocks on the door that have changed people's lives, where they've inherited huge sums of money, never even realizing that they were related to the people they inherited it from. And yet, this isn't about old Uncle Billy. This is about the God who created the world. It was hidden in the God who created the world and was in the process. His inheritance was the recreation of that world for his people. To proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light, Paul says, this was my privilege, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things. But not just because he knew the plan, but because he knew the purpose. He says it was hidden for ages and I'm bringing it to light now. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I know the plan that God would, in Christ, build the church built on one person, built of all peoples. And I know the purpose that this is about God displaying God's Glory, God's manifold wisdom in the face of God's enemies. These are the very rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that even today are wreaking havoc in this world. This is God's statement to them. It was hidden for ages, Paul says. So that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places must have thought God was as much a fool as Dawkins does. That he couldn't even save one people, let alone all peoples. Until through that one person, one people, wayward as they were, he sent one person. But even then, can you imagine the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places Saying, is this it? Is this it, God, the best that you got? A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a trough? A tinker from Nazareth of all places? Is this it? This is your plan? Who, who only had in him enough to, to gather around him a ragtag group of fishermen? This is not the crowd you use to save the world. This is it, God? This is your plan. And then the climax of it all, that he would hang there on a cross. This is what you were thinking? 
until the dawn of the third day. I can imagine the shudder. Death was all that they were after. The destruction of this world and the destruction of the image of God. You can imagine the shudder. And then this ray of wisdom that God wasn't as much of a fool as everybody thought he was broke into the day as another and another and another were raised with him and seated with him. Where? In the very heavenly places that his worst enemies thought they ruled. This is the wisdom of God. Paul says, I know the plan, and I know the purpose. And you can trust that because this is about God doing what God said God was going to do, that he set out to do from the very beginning, and that because this is about God's own reputation, not for us, it's not for us, it's not for Dawkins, It's for those in the heavenly realms, the rulers and authorities who pit themselves against the creator of this world and tried to take his throne for themselves. That God's going to do what God set out to do. I know what I'm talking about, Paul says. And I know what I'm about to pray for you. So have confidence in what I'm saying. This is about God. It's a God thing. Aren't these the best kind of things in life? This is a God thing. God doing it for God's sake. We just get to tag along and reap all the benefits. This was, Paul says in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you because I am a prisoner of Christ, not the Romans, and the executor of the estate, and I will go to whatever lengths necessary to proclaim to you your share in it. So that my suffering, he says, is your glory. Don't lose heart, Paul says, because I know God's plan and I know God's purpose, that we are together heirs and that God has staked his reputation on seeing this through. So I know, Paul says, what I've been telling you and I know what I'm praying for. And interestingly enough, Isn't this part of the greatest privilege, the greatest benefit of God's plan for us? That we'd be able to do just that, just like Paul. That the plan has been realized in Christ Jesus, in whom he says we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. 
so we can pray down here because we've been seated up there and because we know God's plan as well and because we know God's purpose. Let me pull a couple of these threads together before we go. First, let me encourage you. Put your confidence in all that we've been considering these last weeks and we'll consider next week when we finally hear Paul pray. This is the plan of God and his purpose to put his wisdom on display. And Paul was in a unique position to proclaim that. But we can put as much confidence in these things today as when he first penned them. And for very much the same reasons. Because they make sense of our world and because they make sense as a story. If you ever had an intro to philosophy course, you may have gone over this, that philosophers have sort of come up with two ways of evaluating worldviews, evaluating one, someone's conception of the world we live in. It's called um, coherence and correspondence. Correspondence, does it make sense of the world we live in? And coherence, does it fit together as a story? And you can actually go around, and as you talk to people, you can think, is what they're telling me or what they're living out, does this make sense of the world they live in, and does this make sense as a story? I'd suggest, and what I think Paul's saying here is, Christianity is the one that holds the title for this. The closest after Christianity is abject atheism. You can push on all other religions, all other worldviews, and you'll find that abject atheism is the closest to Christianity. But they can't explain where we came from, and they can't explain why we're so concerned with where we're going. And so Paul's saying, look at this. Look at this. The plan and the purpose that this makes sense of our world and that this is a better story than anyone else has. You could put your confidence in what Paul has been telling us and about what we're going to see next week. Second, I'd encourage us as a church that our highest priority ought to be displaying the manifold wisdom of God. Now, that might not be catchy enough for a billboard, but we should be doing that. That should be our aim, to display the manifold wisdom of God, that this is what God is after, and that this should be what we're after as well. And we can do that by sticking to the gospel. Sticking to the gospel, that we be a community made by grace and marked by grace. That that's the way in and that's the way up. And that's how we treat each other and that's how we treat the outsider. And then that's the dividing line, not between us and them, but between the people we partner with or the churches we partner with or those we're in fellowship with and the ones we're not. That KBC would be marked by grace. That's the dividing line between who's in and who's out. Stick to the gospel and make known the manifold wisdom of God. And we will be a people, because God is a God, 
who is doing, who is drawing a church from all nations. That's the dividing line. No cultural, no cultural baggage, nothing we bring to the table, no preferential treatment for one piece of worship or another piece of worship or music style. Grace is the dividing line. That we'd be put our confidence in God's plan and confidence in God's purpose, that God's going to do what God set out to do, that we would reflect the wisdom of God by making grace the dividing line of our fellowship. Lastly, let me pick up something I haven't touched on in a couple weeks, but had for a while. Paul says here that because he knew God's plan and because he knew God's purpose, he was in a unique position to be the executor of the estate. Did everybody catch the image running through here? He was the executor of the estate to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to those who didn't even know they could have a share in it. But as each of us, even today, has grown in our understanding of God's plan and our understanding of God's purpose, we've been put in a position of being little executors of the estate. And we can carry that out in much the same way that Paul did, by proclaiming God's plan and purpose and showing outsiders how it makes better sense of our world than any of the alternatives they may have picked up along the way. And better sense as a story. So remember that, remember that one person that you're better situated in life to share Jesus with? Remember that one person? So let's revisit that, come back to that. That one person that God has in your life that you're better situated to share Jesus with than anyone else. Here's a suggestion. Take them out to lunch again. Listen to their story. But this is what you're listening for. Listen to their story so much so that you can find where their story breaks down. Where the worldview they're putting their stake in the ground for doesn't hold water where it's leaking. Show them that. Talk to them about that. Push them there. And then push them to Jesus and share with them your story and why it makes more sense of the world we live in and why it makes better sense as a story itself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we go from here today, I pray we'd go with great confidence, both in your plan and great confidence in your purpose, that we are, through Jesus, together heirs of the promise of your presence, and that with Paul we might be the executors of your estate, proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. To our impoverished world. In his name we pray. Amen.
for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.